I wonder if you can identify with this quote. On most days, my responsibilities, requirements, and ambitions add up to much more than I can handle. It has since I was a teenager and only seems to be getting worse. When someone asks me how I'm doing, my response almost always includes the word busy. I can think of several moments in just the past couple of months when I've muttered to myself, what am I doing? How did I get myself into this mess? When will I ever get my life under control? How long can I keep this up? Why can't I manage my time? Why did I say yes to this? How did I get so busy? I've bemoaned my poor planning and poor decision making. I've complained about my schedule. I've put in slipshod work because there wasn't time for any other kind. I've missed too many quiet times and have been too impatient with my kids. I've taken my wife for granted and fed important relationships with leftovers. I've been too busy to pursue God with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, I've likely been just like you. These words are from the opening chapter of a very helpful book, a very short bit book called Crazy Busy by Kevin DeYoung, very appropriately subtitled, a mercifully short book about a really big problem. God has used this book to help me take an honest look at the frantic pace of my own life, and I commend it to you as you consider your own crazy, busy schedule. Many of us come to this worship gathering weary from the frenzy that is life, and especially in this season, weary from the frenzy of all the preparations that lie ahead of us for Christmas. How many of you have jotted down to-do lists, gift lists, grocery lists during the worship gathering? In fact, during the sermon, I've done it. We've got so much to do and so little time to do it. We're pressed for time. We live a frantic pace. How do we think about busyness? What does it look like to find a healthy rhythm of work and rest? God's all about a rhythm of work and rest. You see it from creation onward. There's a rhythm that we need to have. Is your rhythm off? Today we continue our Advent series entitled, Why Did Jesus Come? Now that is a very important question. That is the question of life. Why did Jesus come? And this Advent season we're exploring several statements that Jesus makes himself to answer that question. So last Sunday as we opened the series, we considered Jesus' I have come statement in Luke chapter 19 verses 1 through 10. Jesus says, I have come to seek and to save the lost. In our second sermon in this series, we're going to look at a statement that Jesus makes in Matthew. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So one of the reasons why Jesus came was that we could come to him for rest. Jesus has come to give rest to weary souls. Oh, and how appropriate is it? to think about that message during this particular season of Advent. With all the hustle and bustle, Jesus came so that we could come to him to find rest for our weary souls. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. In the Bibles we've provided on your chairs, you can find Matthew 11 on page 816. 
page 816. And if you're here today and you need a copy of the scripture, we love to give free Bibles away. In the lobby, the bookshelf closest to the restrooms, there are several hardback black Bibles. Please take one if you need it. Bring one to a friend, uh, by all means. Matthew chapter 11, I'm going to read just three verses, 28, 29, and 30. We'll, we'll examine the surrounding context, so fear not, but we're just going to focus in on uh, Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now in this passage, we're confronted with a problem and we're provided with a solution. We're confronted with a problem and we're provided with a solution. So what I want to do here is just first examine the problem and its cause, and then we'll take a look at the solution and its applications. So we're going to look at the problem and its cause, and then the solution and its applications. So as we look to Matthew 11, what is the fundamental problem that is presented? Well, there are people straining under a great burden, straining under their labor and burdens in life. And Jesus extends this gracious invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Another translation reads, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. These people are straining and stressed as a result of the current trajectory of their lives. I wonder if you know what that's like. Straining and stressed over the current trajectory of your life. Can you identify? They're weary and burdened. Do you know what that's like? Such a helpful passage. We know exactly what it's like to be burdened by the trajectory of our own lives. The burdens that we shoulder. So the key question that arises from Matthew 11 is, why are the people that Jesus addresses so weary and burdened? This is the problem. Human weariness. What's the cause? When we consider the surrounding context of Matthew 11, 28 through 30, we see it is sin that burdens people, that weighs people down. Sin causes human weariness as we walk through life. The manifestations of sin in all its various forms is what burdens us. So in the previous context, the preceding context, what comes before, Jesus, notice, speaks to a group of shameless, irreligious sinners. Matthew eleven twenty one. 21, he says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. These are two cities in the surrounding areas where Jesus was doing ministry. For if the mighty works done in you had been done entire inside, and they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Jesus did faithful work preaching and signs and wonders that bolstered his preaching message, and they remained in their rebellion. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. These people are unrepentant. They have no care for Jesus, his message, and his mighty works. Obstinate, hard of heart. These are irreligious, rebellious people. And then notice... In the proceeding context, the passage that comes after, Jesus speaks to a different population of people, but they're sinful nonetheless. Moral people, religious people, the Pharisees, who are so disgruntled over Jesus' breaking of their rigid Sabbath rules. Jesus says in Matthew 12, I desire mercy and not 
sacrifice. Jesus desires evidence of grace in their lives, not empty religion. These people miss the grace-filled message of Jesus because of their religious blinders. So when we hold what comes before this passage, this weary passage, and what comes after the pre and the post context, we find that Jesus addresses both licentious sinners and legalistic sinners, both irreligious people and religious people. Sin comes in various shapes and sizes, and Jesus is speaking to all of us. This is the nature of sin. No matter its form, it weighs people down. It burdens us. It makes us weary. It's the most crushing burden that a human being can bear. Sin. That's the problem is weariness. The cause of that is sin. Now listen to this word picture from the prophet Isaiah about the load that sin places on us. Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 18, Woe to those who draw sin as with cart and ropes. The image there is a weary traveler going uphill, pulling a cart of sin behind him, behind her with ropes. Woe to those who draw sin, who pull sin with cart and ropes. It burdens people. It burdens you. It burdens me. Now, what are the various forms patterns of sin in our lives that contribute to our crazy busyness. I want to just helpfully draw several patterns, problematic sin patterns that contribute to our crazy busy lives. Some of these come from Kevin DeYoung's book, Crazy Busy. Some of these just a careful reflection of our own church community, my own life. So I'm going to walk through several common patterns, problematic patterns that contribute to a frantic life. Number one, pride. Pride. Now, in truth, pride seeps into to all of these various sin patterns, but what I'm referring to here is an inflated sense of self-importance, a sense that you are indispensable, that the world won't go on without you, and we all deal with this to some degree or another. The mentality that if I'm not present at this outreach, at this meeting, at this service, at this job, you fill in the blank, it's not going to go on. It's an inflated sense of self-importance. There is only one who is indispensable, the Lord Jesus. The world won't go on without him. It will go on without us, though. So how does pride, an inflated sense of self-importance, contribute to your frantic pace of life? Number two, materialism. Let me give you a little anecdote here. Laura and I have dear friends. They used to live in Foxborough, Mass. When we came 17 years ago, we landed at their home. I started seminary at Gordon-Conwell. Lovely people who love the Lord. They enjoyed spending time up on Lake Winnipesaukee. And in the course of time, uh, my friend Chris was able to buy a boat. And he would spend hours getting this boat ready and then winterizing it at the end of the season. And he said to me in jest, you know, jokingly, he said, Dan, do you know what the two best days of a man's life are? The day he buys his boat and the day he sells his boat. What did he mean? He's pointing to the pain of maintenance. Here's the reality. The more you have, the more you have to maintain. That's the reality. The more you have, the more you have to maintain. Now, am I saying if you get something nice like a boat, 
you're a sinner. I'm not saying that. I'm not preaching law here in legalism. What I am saying is, let's carefully evaluate our lives, our bandwidth. We only have so much. We need to make good decisions about, hmm, what can I acquire that I can realistically maintain without causing unneeded stress in my life? What can I take on that is just manageable? And what decisions do I make that maybe are just too much? So all of just evaluate your schedule and your stuff. Can I, number one, can I afford this? Okay, if you can, can I maintain this? Do I have the bandwidth to take care of this object, this material? The more you have, the more you have to maintain. Less is often more. Pride, materialism. Number three, people-pleasing. People-pleasing. How do you unnecessarily load more onto your shoulders because you were unable to say an important two-letter word to a request? And that important word is no. No. What ultimately happens when we say yes to every request? When we say yes to every request, we overburden ourselves and we grow bitter towards the people who are requesting of us. People-pleasing, the inability to say yes to people, actually erodes relationship. You will grow bitter towards the people in time who make requests of you. We get stressed out, worn out, and slowly grow resentful towards the people who make requests of us. Brothers and sisters, just wisely say no when you need to. It's okay. They're going to get over it. And in fact, it might help them look to somebody else. What do we ultimately communicate when we say yes to every request? Because oftentimes, let's be honest, the requests come from the same person. When we say yes to every request, we communicate to that person that we are their mini Messiah. We end up fostering a dependence upon the person who keeps requesting of us. Just say no graciously and help them lean on to somebody else in the church community. You are not the Christ. I am not the Christ. I struggle with this. I am exhibit A in our church for this. I just need to graciously say no sometimes. I am not the Christ. You are not the Christ. Say no. How does people-pleasing contribute to your crazy, busy schedule? Pride, materialism, people-pleasing. Number four, here's a biggie, procrastination. Procrastination. Now, let me explain to you how this happens in my own life, and maybe you can identify. There is a task that I know I need to do, and it's a big one, and I don't want to do it because of the work required or the discomfort that's involved, maybe in the, 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 the tense nature of like having a hard conversation. So there's something I know I need to do, and I just don't want to do it. So what do I do? I put it off. I put it off. And I'll do any number of little smaller tasks that give me this kind of temporary productive relief, but it never lasts because I know what's hanging over my head. I know what I have to do. And I wait, and I wait, and I wait, and I do all kinds of other things. And I know it's kind of keeping me up because I know I got to do this. And so finally, the clock is ticking. There is a deadline, and I do it fast as I can because that's the only time I, I don't have any other time. You do it fast. You stay up later than you need to be. You wake up the next day, turn it in, get it done, have the conversation, and you're exhausted. And then I go on to complain about my crazy busy life. Well, what's going on here? Procrastination is rooted in fear. We fear the work required. We fear maybe the tenseness of a relationship, of a hard conversation. 
We, so we run. We run in the other direction. I had a campus pastor who once said, an idol can be something that you run to and grasp, but an idol can also be something that you run from in fear. It's dictating power over you, not because you're running to it to cling to it, but because you're running from it, you're afraid of it. Procrastination is rooted in the idolatry, fear, running from something. Brian Tracy has written a a very helpful book on self-leadership and time management. It's a secular book, but it's helpful. Even as a Christian, it's helpful. The title of his book is called Eat That Frog. Eat That Frog. And his whole thesis is do the distasteful, difficult thing first. In your schedule, eat that frog. Do the thing you want to avoid, the, the distasteful thing, because once you do that, it opens up your schedule. You're using your time wisely. Do the distasteful thing first. Don't let it become an idol that kind of dictates the rest of your schedule. It just kind of hangs over you. Eat that frog. Do the difficult, distasteful thing first. Pride, materialism, people-pleasing, procrastination. Number five, unbelief. Unbelief, and particularly unbelief in the way that it prevents us from taking a Sabbath. I know I'm on tense ground here because different people, different Christians who love Jesus think differently about the Sabbath. I understand that. I understand that Hebrews chapter 4, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is the Sabbath day rest for God's people. In other words, people will argue that Jesus has fulfilled the Sabbath. Well, he certainly is, and we're going to talk about that. He is the place of rest, the person of rest for our souls. But friends, I think it is unwise for us to assume that because Jesus is the Sabbath rest for God's people, we don't need to take an actual day of rest in our schedules. I think that there is wisdom in how God has set up the rhythm of rest and work in creation. Now, I understand it can't always be on a Sunday. There are people in healthcare, people who are pastors, other jobs, you work on Sunday. But what does it look like to be thoughtful about the other days and say, I'm going to rest on this day? The Sabbath is rooted in recharging and recentering yourself on God. That you need him. Your batteries are charged in him alone. So you're just, you're just connecting and plugging into him. That's what Sabbath is all about. Recharging, recentering on God. And it is our unbelief that prevents us from taking proper Sabbaths, from resting during the week. How does this play out? Well, we think we can cheat rest. We see the load of work that we have. Oh, I can't possibly take a Monday off. I take Mondays off. I try to. I can't. I got so much to do. I'm just going to go into the office. I'm just going to do two hours of work. I'm just going to cheat a little bit. I'm going I'm to work on my day off. It's rooted in unbelief. I'm not trusting God that he's going to empower me to be productive the rest of the, the days, my work days. I'm cheating on my, on my day off. Here's what happens. When you do that, your mind is weary, you're not rested, and you're not nearly as productive in the other days. Trust God. He knows how you're wired. He knows that you need rest. If you're a student, rest. Take days off. Remember this in undergrad and in graduate school. I would just cheat a little bit. And then I'll get to the end of the week. I I can't even focus. I'm exhausted. God knows how your body is wired. You need work and you need rest. And when you don't take it properly, you're going to be exhausted and not nearly as productive and sharp later on in the week. Unbelief will chip away your day off because you're not trusting God that he's going to make you productive and efficient the rest of the days. Trust in him. Guard yourself from unbelief. Sabbath taking is an act of faith. You can't cheat rest. 
pride, materialism, people-pleasing, procrastination, unbelief, look out. Here's one that I say with much fear and trembling, a challenge and failure in my own life. Kindergarky. Kindergarky. Kevin DeYoung talks about this in his book, Crazy Busy. Kindergarky means to be ruled by children. I say this as a fellow struggler as my daughter comes in here with her basketball uniform on. Here's the question. Do the activities of your children dictate the schedule of your family or do you dictate the schedule of your family? Again, Laura and I are in the throes of this. We live in a culture, sports happen on Sundays. All right, so Cecile's got a game at 8.30 at Chenery. It's not far. It's going to be a little bit of a bind in the morning. Okay, we made a decision. She can go to her game. If it's at 10 or 11, she's not going to the game. She's coming to worship. We're we're managing these decisions all the time, all the time. Am I saying you're wrong if your kid plays a sports on Sunday? That's not what I'm saying. But you have to think about with your spouse how... Is this dictating our schedule? Like, am I saying yes to everything, or am I calling the shots? You are either going to rule your schedule or be ruled by your schedule. Does your kid's schedule rule you, or do you rule the schedule? These are hard decisions. Come together, pray, make good, sound decisions. Number seven, a failure to unplug a failure to unplug. We are uber-connected people. Smartphones, iPads, laptops, email, text, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Snapchat, the list goes on. These can be helpful, some of them, but do you take time to unplug and rest from a screen? Maybe another way to think about this is, what is the first thing you do in the morning and the last thing you do at night? And does it involve a screen? Let yourself unplug. Your soul needs it. A failure to unplug. Eighth and final, I promise, is approval seeking. You might call this self-justification as well. So, First, self-justification before man, before other people. This is evident when our educational pursuits, our occupational pursuits, our extracurriculars, our relationship pursuits are driven by an insatiable desire to prove ourselves before other people, to present a front that we have it all together, that we are accomplished. Here's the reality. That's a race that never ends. It's a treadmill. there's always going to be somebody to compare yourself with, and there's always going to be somebody who is smarter than you, more accomplished than you, better than you, sharper than you. So if you're constantly living your life to seek approval and compare, it's never going to end, and you're never going to reach the mountaintop. It's a relentless race, approval-seeking. We also do this before God. We try to gain his approval based on what we do. That was the issue of the religious people in this passage, that comes after in chapter 12, the Pharisees that Jesus speaks to, they're irate because he's breaking their Sabbath laws. They're heavy laden because they're trying to do things and add to the law to make themselves approved before God. Here's the the reality. We could never do enough deeds to make ourselves acceptable and approved before God. 
we will always come up short. But God is mercy sent his son to do the work for us, all of it for us. And if we would just rest and trust in his son, we're approved without any work on our own. We then go ahead and do work out of a place of salvation, out of a place empowered by Christ, but we don't do the work to be approved by God. Christ has already done the work. We rest in his finished work. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, your good deeds will ultimately leave you empty, unsatisfied, and unsaved. Only when you rest in the work of Christ alone. Jesus Christ offers the most compassionate, gracious invitation to weary sinners. He says, come to me in this passage. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the glorious solution to the problem of human weariness and its cause, all the manifestations and forms of sin. Rest in Christ. Trust in Christ. Just sit at his feet and receive what he's given to you. He takes all of your burden, all of your sin on his shoulders. This is the glorious good news of the gospel that we celebrate here at Advent and all year round at Easter, his resurrection. He shouldered all of our burdens, our people-pleasing, our inability to say no, our approval-seeking. He shoulders all of it, all of our pride, all of our materialism, all of our fear, all of our procrastination. He shoulders all of it at the cross. He just says, cast the burdens on me because I care for you. Trust in him. Receive his invitation. Throw your burden on his shoulders. So what's the solution to a crazy busy life? More vacations? No. More Jesus. Rest in Jesus receive from him cease striving and know that jesus christ is lord that's the solution cease striving and know that jesus christ is lord matthew 11 verse 29 jesus then unpacks the applications of this resting in christ okay what it looks like to rest in christ Verse 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I just want to highlight three applications about resting in Christ from what Jesus says in this verse. Three applications. Here's the first. Resting in Christ involves working with Christ. Now, that may seem counterintuitive. Resting in Christ involves working with Christ. Jesus invites those who will trust and follow him as his disciples to work with him. Notice he says, take my yoke upon you. A little bit of historical background. The yoke was a wooden bar across the shoulders of a team of oxen. So it would rest on the shoulder of at least two oxen, and they would pull together. Well, Jesus is saying, hey, listen, come to me. Take my yoke upon you. In other words, come to me and get, on, get in this harness with me. Like, I'm on the one side, and you're on the other side. As disciples of Jesus, we're actually called co-workers with him. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. What a dignifying title. If you're a Christian, you're God's co-worker. Imagine that. You work alongside him. Jesus is inviting us not to a life of ease and vacation. He's saying, no, follow me. I'll make you fishers of people. Work with me. Be my coworker in reaching out and catching men and women for gospel. 
He's inviting us to work with him. You would never find true rest and satisfaction in a life vacation. John Piper has this wonderful sermon, It Is Challenging, about seashells. He speaks of a couple that retires in their late 50s, early 60s. They had saved enough money. They, want, they, they retired from their jobs. Well, what is retirement from a Christian perspective? They go and they collect seashells. And at the end of their life, they, they, they showed the Lord what they did with the last 30 years. They, they collected seashells. How empty would that be? How unsatisfying that would be? Our, our lives as Christians are wired to serve the Lord. That actually invigorates us. It refreshes us. Does it make us tired at times? Yes. But you as a Christian are called to be his co-worker, engaged in his mission. It's fulfilling. It is fulfilling. My mom and dad have just retired, and I'm so grateful that they've started just serving in their church a little bit more, doing Bible studies, engaging in various ministries. That has been my prayer all along because I think sometimes and I'm not there yet, but like retirement has to be carefully thought through. How are you going to use your time? If you're a Christian, use your time. Leverage it for the kingdom. It will satisfy you. You will be restless when you're collecting seashells and other earthly things that really don't mount up to anything in eternity. Use your time wisely. Work for the Lord. It is satisfying and invigorating in life. What does this look like? just uh, in, a, in, a, in an everyday example here. Let's say God is impressing on your heart a neighbor that needs Christ. Alex talked about this in our confession time. I want to think about what would it take to reach out to this neighbor with the gospel? And what it's, what's it going to do? How's it going to stir you up out of stagnancy? Well, if you begin to think about a neighbor that you see all the time but you've not engaged, it's going to cause you to pray for that neighbor Pray for courage, pray for an opportunity, pray for wisdom as you seek to invite them over maybe for a, a, a lunch or coffee during the holidays. The prospect of having a gospel conversation or engaging in somebody's life in a spiritual way is going to cause you to go on your knees because you realize that you are insufficient, and we are. It's going to churn you to pray. It's also going to churn you to read the word. How can we possibly be equipped to engage with somebody when we don't have opportunities to, to read the scriptures and be equipped to share the gospel. So the prospect of gauge, engaging in the work of Jesus is actually going to stir you up to pray and to read and to prepare, to have that spiritual conversation, to make that engagement with a neighbor. Engaging in the work of Jesus will, will churn us and stir us spiritually, will enliven us. This is the mission of Jesus. This is the yoke that he invites us to step into, and it is so satisfying to be a part of his work. Resting in Christ involves working with Christ. Resting in Christ also involves learning from Christ. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Jesus is inviting his followers to learn from him, to sit at his feet, to learn from him. Now, to illustrate this point, I want to just read very briefly a passage that, that displays this beautifully. This is a passage, if, you've, if you're familiar with the Bible, you, you, you likely have heard before. The story of Martha and Mary. And as I read this brief story, I want to ask you this question. Who is weary and why? Who is resting and how? Who is weary and why? Who is resting and how? This is the story of Martha and Mary from Luke. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. 
She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all this work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Who is weary and why? Martha is weary. Many of us can identify with Martha. Oh, she's diligent. She's realistic. There's work to be done here, and somebody's got to do it, and I'm doing it all, and my sister Mary's not helping. She's irritated. Martha's to-do list trumps her time with Jesus, and I bet you know what that's like. How long is your to-do list this week, and how tempted will you be to just wash out your time with Jesus in his word and prayer because you got so much to do? Martha's to-do list trumps her time with Jesus. That's the problem. Who is resting and how? Well, Mary is resting as she sits at the Lord's feet and just listens to him. And sitting at the feet of a rabbi is the posture of a learner. She's learning. She's sitting under his teaching. She's learning from him. She's doing the very thing that Jesus invites us to do in Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Sit at my feet. Hear my words. Take them into your soul. She's learning from Jesus. And notice how Jesus describes the choice that Mary makes. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Martha's doing a lot of good things. She's making preparations. She's doing good things. But the problem is she forsakes something that is better. In your life, here's the question. What is good and what is better? What is good and what is better? There's a ton of good things that we can do, but there's something better that we must do, making that prioritization. What is good and what is better? The reality is the better thing, the best thing that you can do in the course of your day is just pause for a moment and hear from the words of Jesus. Just open his word, hear from him, receive and communicate back to him through prayer. That's the best thing, to learn from him, to sit at his feet. How are you tempted to just shove that away because of your to-do list? Resting in Christ involves learning from Christ, daily sitting at his feet, receiving from him, and communicating to him through prayer. Resting in Christ involves working with Christ. Resting in Christ involves learning from Christ. Thirdly and finally, resting in Christ involves trusting in Christ. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What does it mean that Jesus is gentle and lowly? He's humble of heart. He's entered our existence through his incarnation. He's taken on human form. Therefore, he's able to sympathize with us in our every weakness and our every shortcoming and our every trial. He knows it. It's an invitation to lean into him and to trust in him because he knows your experience. That's the beauty of the incarnation. He humbled himself, took up our existence. He knows what it's like, and he says, come to me. Trust in me. I know what it's like to be human. Trust in him. And notice what Jesus says just a few verses later. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you revealed them to little children. So who in this passage does Jesus point to as the model for coming to him to find rest? Children. Children understand this reality. You know, some of my fondest memories as a father 
is at the end of a crazy day where my kids were all over the place. They've run themselves ragged, but then they just fall into my arms or to Laura's arms, and they just collapse and they fall asleep. They know how to play hard. They know how to run hard, and they know exactly where to go to find rest, where they can be protected and nurtured and cared for, the arms of their parents. One of the dangers about preaching a sermon on busyness and crazy schedules is leaving us all guilty as we walk out of here for how busy you are. That is not my goal. So let me just conclude with this. In our lives, we are going to be busy. God desires that we work heartily unto him, that we pursue our professions with excellence, that we serve and bless our neighbors, that we engage in the life of our church, that we care for our families. When you seek to do that, you are going to be busy. Work heartily as unto the Lord, not for for people. Work unto the Lord, knowing it's the, the Lord Christ that you are serving. Work hard, but know where to find rest and in whose arms you can find it. That's the invitation here. Work hard, but know that you need rest and know the one in in whose arms that you can find it. Jesus says, come to my arms. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Let this season, frantic as it is, be a reminder that you need the arms of your Savior to welcome you and to give you rest. Let's go to him. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your invitation here through your word to go to your son for rest. Lord, many of us are weary and burdened by patterns that we've gotten into. Now, this is hard. Give us wisdom. Give us your spirit's insight to evaluate our schedules, our lives, our families, our commitments at church, our extracurriculars. Help us to think wisely about our bandwidth, to make good, sound decisions for our sustainment over time. Help us to rally together as a, as a body of Christ, accountable to one another, being mindful of how one another perhaps are overstretched in the life of the church to care for and to support and to pray for. Lord, ultimately help us to just fall into your arms, to cease striving, know that you are Lord. And God, I pray for some who've not trusted in you as Savior, who are feeling the strain of their sin. Lord, may this season be an invitation for them to come to you the gentle and lowly shepherd of their souls, and find rest in your arms. In Jesus' name, amen.